This week, the burdens of caregiving in the intensive care unit and the significance of symptoms in people who smoke. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am joined today by my friend Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing great, Amol. How are you? I'm great, Nathan. You are. We're in our last month of residency. Congratulations. And to you. Thank you. Uh, are you facing, it's the home stretch. It's the home stretch. Don't give out on me here. Don't hit a wall at the last minute. <laughs> Uh, are you f- facing existential angst? Uh, I'm not facing existential uh, angst. I'm facing uh, very much uh, exam-related angst. Well, I think we should let the listeners know that you are a trooper who is here recording this podcast in advance of your surgery board exam on June 11th. So best of luck for your exam. I think when this episode airs, it'll be very close to your exam. So uh Best of luck for your exam, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Okay, so we'll, let's not prolong things. Let's not make your pain any ex, any longer than it needs to be. <laughs> so let's dive right yeah, in. I gotta get. I gotta get back to uh, more more relevant topics. To uh, you don't to think? The main do you event. think caregiving in the intensive care unit is going to show up on your surgery exam? You know, they always say that they'll throw a curveball, something that you never saw in your training, and that you. Uh, have to apply first principles to deal with. So, you know, you never know. Well, let's, if it does, you'll have to make a promise to come back on the podcast and tell us that that's what happened. And because of me is why you passed and became. <laughs> I promise. Okay. So Nathan, let's dive in. Tell me about this study about caregivers in the ICU. Yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. So this is a, uh, a study that was published in, uh, in the New England Journal last month. And it is looking at uh, outcomes of caregivers for critically ill patients. Uh, and it was a study actually done here in Canada. And the authors include uh, who's who of Toronto intensivists and others around the country. And their, and their main finding was that uh, there are significant uh, mental health uh, uh, challenges for caregivers of those who've been discharged from the ICU. Okay. So Nathan, this is obviously a really hot topic in health services research and in health policy in terms of caring for the caregivers and understanding more about caregiver burden. So what did we know about this topic and why did these authors decide to do this study? So uh, the the background included a a few interesting details. So this is uh, basically uh, a huge issue in in healthcare, as you said, with uh, in Canada, uh, unpaid Caregivers basically uh, make it made up of family and, and close friends, providing an estimated twenty-seven billion dollars of of labor in our country and over six hundred billion dollars in the United States. And with respect to patients who are discharged from uh, the ICU, at least half of them uh, require or uh, receive uh, ongoing care from uh, an unpaid caregiver for at least a year uh, following discharge. And there's been some uh, preliminary evidence uh, documenting significant emotional distress, life disturbances, and even post-traumatic stress disorder for unpaid caregivers. And these investigators were interested in uh, studying this uh, in, in more of a formal fashion with uh, 
a longitudinal uh, assessment uh, with a cohort of caregivers uh, among patients uh, in being discharged from Canadian ICUs. Okay, yeah. So really important and interesting question. And this is a group that has a lot of experience, I guess, led by uh, Dr. Margaret Herridge in Toronto, who have a lot of experience doing follow-up studies of patients, cohorts of patients who had been admitted to the ICU. So this is kind of right in their wheelhouse. So how did they do this study, Nathan? So the uh, patient population uh, was uh, made up of critically ill patients who spent at least uh, seven days on a mechanical ventilator and then were subsequently discharged uh, home. And of these uh, of these patients, they identified uh, a caregiver, uh, again, a friend or family member who uh, was serving as the uh, unpaid care provider for one of these patients. And they collected data on both uh, the patient and some uh, parameters around their hospitalization and recovery, as well as uh, uh, surveyed the caregiver with various instruments uh, over uh, the course of a year post-discharge. Okay. And so they followed up these patients for a year after discharge from hospital. These were patients specifically who you mentioned had been mechanically ventilated and survived to discharge. Exactly. And what types of outcomes were they interested in looking at for the caregivers? So the main outcomes were uh, parameters measuring uh, psychological well-being, such as uh, risks for depression, anxiety, overall mental health, as well as overall physical health. Those were the main uh, outcomes that they were measuring for the caregivers. They also measured uh, some baseline and uh, ongoing measurements of the impact of caregiving as some of their uh, uh, measures to risk stratify or, uh, or, or uh, see, see what might be uh, predictors for some of the health outcomes. So they looked at, there, there are some standardized instruments evaluating uh, impact of caregiving on your overall uh, quality of life, uh, measures assessing social supports, measures uh, assessing uh, control over your uh, general uh, life, and uh, as well as uh, demographic information, including education and, and income and uh, marital status. With respect to the patients, they looked at some parameters from their intensive care unit admission, such as comorbidity index, like the Charleston Comorbidity Scale, their Apache 2 scores, and then uh, physical and mental health scores of, uh, of the patients post-discharge. And overall, they attempted to correlate these uh, patient-related and caregiver-related uh, factors with the uh, mental and physical health outcomes of the caregivers. Okay, so their primary purpose was to study the health and mental well-being outcomes for the caregivers. Exactly. Okay, perfect. So tell me, Nathan, how many people were they able to enroll in this study? So uh, good question, of course. So they uh, approached 330 caregivers and 280 were enrolled in the study. And then of those, 238 uh, completed at least one assessment. And there was uh, a trail off in the amount and the number that uh, completed uh, all four assessments. They, they measured uh, all of these different instruments uh, every three months for one year. And uh, some of the reasons why uh, they had a trail off was be was because the patient died, and their uh, data collection for their caregiver was uh, 
uh, suspended at that point in time, and others uh, just were lost to follow-up or, or didn't complete uh, subsequent uh, measurements. So what was the rate of follow-up at one year? So uh, just over half of the uh, participants completed all four assessments up to one year. Okay. So that's pretty significant loss to follow-up, actually. Um, and I guess one of the things that these authors did uh, was use various statistical techniques to impute the possible responses with loss to follow-up. So these things like multiple imputations uh, to... Yeah, exactly. So they, they addressed that themselves in, in, their, in the manuscript, uh, discussing the limitations anytime you have missing data and have to uh, use statistical methods to account for that. There's a, you know, it is, it is a potential issue and, uh, you know, and, and certainly we have to, I guess, keep that in mind as we, as we look at the results. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the baseline characteristics of these caregivers. What, what did they look like? You know, age, income, gender. That so, kind of uh, yeah, they were, uh, average age of the, of the caregivers was uh, 53, 70% of them were women and, uh, 60% were caring for a spouse. About 40% had incomes over $70,000. Uh, about 83 were of the caregivers were married or in a common-law relationship, and, and about half uh, had uh, completed uh, at least post-secondary uh, education or more. Okay, and so this study you mentioned happened across multiple sites in Canada. Yes. And tell me what they found. So uh, their their main outcome was looking at the proportion of the caregivers who scored uh, at levels on these instruments that would put them in high risk categories for depression, anxiety, or overall uh, 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 poor mental health. And the uh, one that they uh, spent some time elaborating on was was for depression. So uh, initial rates of depression when they did baseline measurements at the time of discharge was uh, about two-thirds of the caregivers were scoring at a level that would put them at high risk for depression. This dropped to about 50% at three months, and then by a year had plateaued at around 43%. So this, uh, you know, is obviously quite high. And with this instrument, they do have some comparisons to the general Canadian population, which uh, scores 12%, so uh, significantly higher than uh, the general population uh, for those uh, caring for patients discharged from the ICU. And interestingly, they compared this to the same instrument had been used to measure caregivers' depression scores for, for caregivers of, of patients with dementia. And in that study, uh, the, the amount of patients scoring high for depression was 32%, so less than those uh, caring for critically ill patients. And they saw similar scores for psychological well-being and overall mental health. Interesting. So... I guess it's not that surprising that uh, people who have had a loved one in the intensive care unit who has been critically ill enough to require mechanical ventilation for seven days have high rates of depression or at are at high risk of depression to be technical about the scores that were used. So yes, thank you. <laughs> I know how much that you know matters to you. Uh, so one of the things I have always wondered about studies like this is our inability to capture the depression scores or the measures prior to the ICU encounter, right? So we don't know what the baseline rates are in this caregiver population. 
So we're left making these comparisons to the general population or to other groups that might be similar, like people who care for uh, uh, people with dementia, like you mentioned. Right. So I guess that's one of the limitations of this kind of work is that it's hard to know what the pre ICU rates of depression would have been in this population. And it's conceivable that this group of people might not be comparable to the general population. Right. I mean, maybe these uh, patients that uh, these caregivers looked after had chronic medical problems and the patients, the, the caregivers were uh, you know, looking after them and had challenges, you know, pre-ICU admission. You're, you're completely right. Uh, there's no uh, pre-post uh, measure here and there's, and there's really no uh, control group within the study population, just uh, the general uh, rates of uh, 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 within the general population that we know about from these instruments that are referenced. Right. But nevertheless, uh, rates are very high and interestingly, they persist for up to a year at fairly high rates in terms of risk of depression. So what are the features, either patient factors or caregiver factors, that put caregivers at greater risk for depression? So interestingly, there were no specific patient factors that were associated with any change in, in caregiver well-being. And you know, it's hard to know whether that may be because within the cohort of patients studied of uh, requiring a ICU stay with mechanical ventilation of at least seven days, how much, uh, you know, uh, variability there is within that group of significant enough uh, health issues that would influence caregiver well-being. I mean, it seems like, at least in this study, uh, they don't have any uh, um, variability that, that affects caregiver well-being. Right. The patients were all really ill. Exactly. Uh, they did look at some of the uh, caregiver uh, factors, both demographic and uh, and their responses to their uh, overall social situation and support. And again, I think not surprisingly, uh, they found that those that described on standardized instruments a greater burden of caretaking, less social support, and lower income, uh, all were associated with uh, less caregiver well-being. And then uh, maybe less intuitively, uh, those that, uh, younger uh, of younger age. Well, maybe not less intuitively. I guess if you're younger, that means something, you know, bad has happened to a younger person as well, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, we don't. Some people are caring for parents, and True. Uh, you know, you might. I well, at least I might have thought that maybe uh, young people have, you know, their own health may be better. They may be more resilient uh, compared to uh, an older person with. Additional issues, you know, it's all—it's only speculation as to as to why, you know, why that uh, relationship might exist. But nevertheless, that was what they found. Right. So, what do you make of all this, Nathan? I mean, the the obvious takeaway is that caring for someone who has been through the ICU is hard, and it takes a toll on the caregiver. What's the takeaway? I think what. This does having this paper published in, in you know in the New England Journal and uh, drawing attention to this is important from uh, you know public policy perspective. As we said, uh, you know, in our earlier comments, uh, we know the important role that caregivers play in our healthcare system, certainly in Canada and in, and in many other jurisdictions, and their resilience and ability to uh, undertake those important. Uh, duties for for our patients 
uh, is limited by the their own uh, mental and physical uh, well-being. And I think having a study like this, you know, draw attention to the significant impact that uh, th- these uh, caregiving duties uh, have on on caregivers uh, is, is important. And I think you know th- there are both kind of macro level uh, implications to this uh, when thinking about uh, healthcare system resources, but also you know for those of us, uh, you and I, who are the people discharging uh, patients who are in the ICU to home. Um, being, uh, you know, increasingly aware of, you know, the, the impact, uh, on, on families and caregivers and, and being, uh, perhaps uh, increasingly mindful of, uh, trying to ensure that, uh, discharge plans are optimal and social supports and, uh, supports from the system are, are maximized for these, uh, for these patients and their families. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, exciting and not lost on me that this, Publication is a collaboration of the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, so leading us to believe that this is the first phase in a body of work around caregivers in the ICU, and perhaps with an eye towards interventions to attempt to reduce some of the burdens uh, that caregivers experience. That's an, an encouraging thought. I hope you're right. Okay. Uh, thanks so much, Nathan. I think it's a good time to change gears. All right, let's do it. Let's uh, let's talk about smoking and uh, and pulmonary symptoms. Absolutely. So I want to talk about an article about the clinical significance of symptoms in smokers who have preserved pulmonary function. So this was a study published also in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a prospective cohort study of current or former smokers who have normal lung function, but who have symptoms similar to patients who have COPD. And it found that people who have symptoms similar to COPD, even though they have preserved lung function, experience exacerbations at a rate higher than people who have reduced pulmonary function but who don't have symptoms, basically suggesting that the category of people who are smokers and have symptoms associated with uh, respiratory conditions have some kind of pulmonary disease, uh, and it's an important and poorly characterized patient population. Okay, so why don't you tell us uh, what was known about this uh, group of patients? So we're basically talking about a group of patients who have tobacco use or tobacco use history, but don't have any objective uh, PFT evidence of COPD. Yeah, that's right. So the diagnosis of COPD, one of the main criteria for diagnosing uh, obstructive airway disease associated with smoking is through pulmonary function testing. And most experts consider that evidence of airway obstruction is crucial for the diagnosis of COPD. And we learn that COPD is defined by a ratio of your forced expiratory volume in one second over your FVC, um, your forced vital capacity. So it's it's you know a a PFT measure of zero point seven or less. So having pulmonary function abnormalities is central to the diagnosis of COPD. But we also know that some smokers do not have airflow obstruction, but they do have symptoms that are similar to COPD. So they have cough, they have sputum production, they have shortness of breath. 
And prior studies have shown that smokers who do not have airway obstruction can still experience episodes that are similar to COPD exacerbations and that they can have these types of symptoms. They can have symptoms like COPD. And we've also known that people who are smokers but don't have pulmonary function abnormalities have abnormalities on imaging of their lungs when you do a high-resolution CT scans. So certainly pulmonary function abnormalities are not the be-all and end-all of this clinical entity of smoking-related lung injury. And so this was really a study to try and better characterize that patient population because we don't really know much about those patients. We don't really know what the rate of uh, exacerbations is in that group of patients. Um, And so it's a poorly described patient group that has been rated as a high-priority group to understand better. So can you tell us a bit about how they recruited um, patients to uh, be enrolled in in this study, both uh, those with and without uh, PFT abnormalities? So they enrolled patients at multiple centers. It was a study funded in the United States by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And they enrolled about 2,700 participants between 2010 and 2015. They included adults between the ages of 40 and 80. Most of the people that they included in this study were smokers who had at least a 20-pack year history, either current or former smokers. They also included a small uh, population of healthy never-smokers as a control group. And importantly, this was not a study that was meant to be a representative population-based sample. But they actually went out and recruited patients who met the populations that they were interested in. So they found patients who uh, had pulmonary function abnormalities and people who do not have pulmonary function abnormalities who were smokers. Okay, so the relative uh, proportion of patients with and without uh, PFT abnormalities in, in this study is not reflective of an overall... Uh, population or uh, respirology clinic setting. Exactly right. So that's an important characteristic of the design of this study, which is it was not designed to give us an estimate of the prevalence of people who have smoking but do not have pulmonary function abnormalities but have symptoms in the population. Uh, It was designed to compare these two groups of patients and allow us to make some inferences about whether or not people who have symptoms uh, but not pulmonary function abnormalities uh, experience a disease entity. And uh, aside from the uh, variable of interest, PFT abnormalities, were the groups uh, overall pretty similar? Yeah, I'll tell you about the groups. What they did was they um, enrolled these patients and then they followed them every three months to get prospective history about whether or not those patients experienced COPD exacerbations. And they followed them up for an average of 830 days, so two and a half years or so on average. To answer your question about how the groups uh, differed at baseline, there were some really important differences between the groups, actually. For this study, we essentially have five groups of patients. One group was non-smokers who were a healthy control. And then the people who did have smoking were categorized into four groups on the basis of two variables. So they, they were 
categorized based on their pulmonary function. So they either had evidence of airway obstruction or no evidence of airway obstruction. And then they were categorized according to their symptoms. So they either had symptoms or no symptoms. So that gives you a two by two table with four groups of people. So symptoms and good lung function, symptoms and bad lung function, no symptoms and good lung function, no symptoms and bad lung function. So in this study, 10% of the patients never smoked. That was our healthy control. 40% had normal function and about 40% had airway obstruction. Among those with normal lung function, half of the patients had symptoms. So the average age of the patients in the study overall was somewhere around 65 years. Um, but there were big differences between the groups. So the groups that had worse lung function were older. Uh, they were about 68 years, whereas the group who had preserved lung function were closer to 60 years. Also, the group with preserved lung function but more symptoms was more likely to be obese than the other groups. Hmm. So let me tell you what they found. All right, let's hear it. So they followed up these patients I mentioned for 829 days on average, and their primary outcome was the rate of exacerbations uh, in all the different groups. And the main finding was that the rate of exacerbations is higher among the group that had symptoms but normal lung function than it was among people who had abnormal lung function but did not have symptoms. So a category of people who would have mild to moderate COPD by diagnosis, those people had fewer exacerbations than this group of people who would not have COPD by formal diagnostic criteria, but who did have symptoms associated with smoking. Yeah, so that's uh, pretty surprising. Yeah, and the difference was pretty significant. So it was about, on average per person, in the normal lung function but symptoms group, 0.27 events per year, as opposed to 0.08 events per year in the mild to moderate COPD group. So somewhere between three and four times more exacerbations in the group uh, with the symptomatic smokers, but normal lung function. They also had shorter functional, less functional capacity, so they couldn't walk as far on a six-minute walk test. Um, so by several measures, this symptomatic smokers group was sicker than the mild to moderate COPD group. So I think this is a good time to get back to my uh, exam preparation and anticipating those curveball questions. So, you know, if for whatever reason I'm presented with a long-term smoker, 50-pack year history, coughing, short of breath, obviously I'm going to send him for PFTs. That's basic. I get the results back. They're essentially normal. Should I be treating this patient with standard bronchodilators or other medications for COPD? Well, that is an outstanding question, which I think is the natural logical hypothesis that is generated by this study, which is maybe treating this group of symptomatic smokers with bronchodilators, with uh, inhaled corticosteroids, maybe we can reduce the rate of exacerbations. Unfortunately, this study doesn't answer that question. It just raises that question. I guess we'll have to get on that. <laughs> Me and you, right after you finish your exam. <laughs> so uh, the one other point I do want to raise is that I think this, so this raises, there are sort of two conclusions you could draw from this study. These symptomatic smokers who don't have evidence of airway obstruction on PFTs could either represent the same clinical entity just on a spectrum of COPD, 
right? So either they're perhaps they're going to progress to develop airway obstruction down the road, or it could be a different clinical entity. They're, these patients are obese. They have different, you know, they could have different reasons for having symptoms. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the spectrum theory, I think, has some uh, issues because they're having more episodes than those who are what, what we would maybe consider to be further along the spectrum. Well, it depends on what you use to as your marker of severity for the spectrum. And I think that's the, an important uh, an important point, which is that maybe, you know, symptoms are a more important clinical sign than your pulmonary function absolute numbers uh, in terms of, you know, the severity of your illness, assuming that this is indeed the same entity of COPD um, or smoker, you know, related, you know, lung disease. Um, and so... We know that pulmonary function testing is not a perfect test, right? And that the the cutoff that's been chosen of 0.7 FEV1 to FEC ratio is an arbitrary number. And you can move that number up and down and it changes the sensitivity of the test. So if you increase the cutoff to 0.75, then fewer of the participants would in this group would be categorized as having the preserved pulmonary function group, right? Yeah, that, that's actually a good point. So what was the uh, FEV1 to FEC ratio in the uh, symptomatic uh, non-COPD group compared to the healthy control group? Yeah, so let me let me answer your question with, with an example that the, the authors use in this paper. So if they changed the cutoff uh, from 0.7, so there were 849 patients who were symptomatic but with preserved lung function if you use the cutoff of 0.7. So that's the study design. If you change that cutoff to 0.75, then you have only 577 participants. So some, you know, 275 participants have an FEV1 to FEC ratio between 0.7 and 0.75. So very close yeah. to the um, uh, to the cutoff. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely a really interesting uh, group of patients to think about. Absolutely. Okay, Nathan, time for our favorite part of the episode, the good stuff segment. So tell me something short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. So I follow uh, on Twitter uh, a writer named Skeptical Scalpel. That's a ah, pseudonym. Me too. Pseudonym of a surgeon, uh, provocative, witty writer, and he uh, wrote a little uh, blog post called Mystery Solved. Keep your white coats and your sleeves. So I'm a white coat wearer. I like the way it looks. As a physician around uh, around the hospital, I uh, try to uh, stay clear of those that say that it's a vector for infection and uh, continue to uh, to prefer to wear it. And this, uh, this little blog post uh, supports my practice because uh, it uh, reviews a paper that uh, actually measured bacterial loads on white coats that are being washed uh, from basically never to weekly compared to uh, healthcare providers who were wearing uh, uniforms with short sleeves that were washed daily. And basically by the middle of the day, the bacterial counts were the same. And uh, they concluded that uh, the policies that some advocate for uh, not wearing white coats may not uh, have a have a significant foundation. So it supports my supports my practice, which I which I liked. Okay. All right, Nathan. Well, as a non white coat wearer, I don't know what to tell you. 
I just you're, don't like what, inducing what, what white you coat can, hypertension. What you, what you can tell me is uh, that you're just as dirty as the rest of us who are wearing white coats. <laughs> okay. Um, my good stuff is from a letter from Nature Medicine because you know me. I'm typically perusing the hard sciences in my spare time. <laughs> it's not even a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so... so um, I, I saw a really interesting uh, letter published in Nature Medicine about uh, doxorubicin-induced uh, cardiomyopathy. So this is also relevant to your practice, my friend. So well, it's uh, certainly we know relevant that to my uh, the curveball that could be asked on my uh, on my on my oral exam. There it is. So we know that Keep uh, chemotherapeutic agents for breast cancer can cause cardiomyopathy. We also know that this is a poorly understood entity and is very important because of all the number of patients who have uh, breast cancer and who are treated with these types of chemotherapy. And so these authors demonstrated uh, a stem cell derived heart muscle cell that is a, a very good model of the doxorubicin toxicity on those cells. Hmm. And so basically the, it allows them to create an in vitro model where these cells are very sensitive to doxorubicin and display display features very similar to doxorubicin cardiotoxicity. And so there's the hope that this will be a, a pretty big step forward in the science and allow us to really understand some of the me molecular mechanisms and the genetic basis for why some people get uh, cardiotoxicity from those chemotherapy chemotherapy agents. So let's keep our eye on that space. That is uh, that is fascinating. Not quite as fascinating as the fact that I can still wear my white coat without uh, contaminating everybody, but but cool. Very I would cool. say equally, if not more fascinating, but perhaps less directly relevant to your daily life for, for now. For now. For now. All right. Uh, well, Nathan, again, best of luck for your exam. And uh, let's do this again afterwards. And maybe you'll be just that much more jubilant. <laughs> Thanks, Amal. Always a pleasure. Okay, talk to you soon. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.